Oh, now look here, my boy, it's about to start. Fill it, my boy, with the sound of your heart. Make it go boom, Hello, and welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything and everything just not sports. We like to call it sports talk without all the sports talk. On today's show, we'll talk to New York Times bestselling author Shea Serrano about the complicated relationship between sports and rap music. And we'll celebrate the return of Starberry Inc. to America and hope to God that means Stephen Berry's is coming with it. I'm your co-host Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer here in Chicago. Joining me in the studio is a leading sports media strategist who's worked with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many, many global sports brands. It's Adam Willard. Adam, how are you? I'm great, Brad. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Um, all right. Second show. Feeling the flow. Yeah. Getting into it. Yeah. Uh, still feeling our way through it, but getting there and having fun. We've moved from the Shaq Diesel debut phase to the Shaq Fu to return phase of our uh, evolution as a show. I'm going to have to catch up with you on Shaq because I, <laughs> although I know his general body of work, the it scares me the order and the of his rap uh, disco- discography that you are familiar with. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to break that down with Shay later today um, as we get into rap and, and athletes getting in there. Let's Let's kind of re-explain for people our premise. Uh, we're just not sports. We are a show where people who work in sports clearly, you know, we don't want to talk about sports all the time. Athletes, sports media, sports marketers, whatever. So we try to create a safe space, if you will, where they can come in and talk about whatever they want. And so I think on the first episode, you know, we talked a little bit about to the premise of the show, why we're doing it. I got some response from people who asked me, like, well, how do you decide what to talk about? And so I thought, why don't we try to come up with some ground rules here for or guardrails? I don't know, goal, end lines, goal lines. What do you want to call it? Uh, guardrails. Guardrails is a good one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Guardrails. Show guardrails. Because they can be broken. Because <laughs> <laughs> they can be broken, especially when you know MMA and you're six five like Adam Millard. <laughs> um. All right. So the first question I got from people was, all right, you're going to talk to athletes. Can they talk about another sport they're into? Well, I think the rule that we decided is if it's a sport that is a passion of theirs and they don't compete in it for money. I would say if you're Kevin Durant and you're into the NFL, I mean, maybe. But I, if oh, you're you like mean a, as an observer. If you're super into a team or you're into the culture of that sport, I think that's fine. But like – I don't know that we would – I just don't want athletes coming on and being like, yeah, I like this, but they don't really get it. Honestly, Kevin Durant can talk about whatever he That's wants. That's right. Kevin, Kevin, if you're listening, open door policy for you, buddy. Um, you know, a guy you wouldn't expect is super into NASCAR or he's, or he's part of a sports culture. So, like, if you're into British soccer and you get up at 5, 3 in the morning – Okay, great. That's different than what we expect from you as a NBA player or, or a baseball player or whatever. So – uh, for example, Randy Moss is involved in uh, s- stock car racing. Right. On topic. Totally fine. Yeah. Because he's not doing it 
for a living. But like Brad Doherty, who was an NBA player and now gets paid to talk stock car racing, right. I might say, what else you got? Exactly. <laughs> that's still work. All right. right. So that's a good that, – that's with the athletes and this other sports. Entertainment. I get asked about this too. Like, okay, what if a dude is just into – or a girl is just into like a TV show? Are you just gonna, really going to talk about a TV show? It might – I don't know. Well, before I get into it, what do you think about that? Uh, it depends on how into the TV show they are. Exactly. And particularly if they've made a guest appearance on the show or are working towards that, and we can help facilitate that through our millions of listeners, then absolutely that right. counts. I would say, too, it's to me it's like um, if it's like a huge passion obsession of yours. So, like, if it's I've seen The Wire, uh, but if it's like I'm Jason Whitlock and I – literally quote the wire in every tweet that i've written since like 2009 great let's break it down like scene by scene like intense fandom i'm fine whatever it is or if you're a trekkie and you've been to a star trek convention (laughs) yes of course you are clearly involved in the culture of that show or if the show is completely out of whack and unexpected so if it's like i love I'm obsessed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I'm a 6'5", like, linebacker. Yeah. Let's break it down. Let's or, talk about Willow and her uh, and her role in magic on the show. Or, I mean, I'm not, I've never yeah. seen Adam, <laughs> clearly. But. Or if Indomitian Sue is watching Downtown Abbey. I just want to hear. I want to know why. Yeah. I mean, Indomitian, <laughs> hit us up. Yeah. Twitter, at Just Not Sports. All right, moving on real quick. Random lifestyle stuff. We've talked about this. People want to come on. Yeah, I'm into. Ki- like, I got kids. Uh, I think it's like specifics. Like, I got kids. I take them camping every year. Are we going on a road trip to the you know all the historic Civil War battlefields? Like, we went we- elk hunting. That's right. I want yeah. to know the behaviors of your general lifestyle, not so much just like random topics you're into. Right. Right. If it's not something someone would get excited about on your Facebook or Twitter feed, I don't yeah. really care. And hunting, and this is a good example. A lot of athletes hunt. Uh, but then I would push them like, do you do bow hunting? Like, do you do? Do you have like one memorable trip? But, like, let's let's get a little bit more specific. We got to push each other on that. One more question, okay. if I may. Yes. Professional wrestling. A lot of athletes like professional wrestling. Is this the same rule as TV shows, or do you have to have participated on some level other than going to a few Monday Night Raws? So Carl Malone has wrestled. If you seem fair to me. If you've been in the in the ring, mm-hmm. no questions asked. Right. No holds barred, if you will, Adam. <laughs> if you've watched like obsessively, cool. If you were obsessive at one point and you want to talk about that era. So you like can want you want to break down whether when Texas Tornado Roundhouse punched Mr. Perfect, did Mr. Perfect spin the wrong way at SummerSlam eighty nine? Wow. I'll talk about it. Yes, I don't know much about it. I may or may not have an opinion on that. <laughs> I may or may not have broken a videotape, pausing and rewinding it. The Montreal screw job. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. See, we're in any era, totally fine. Again, if you, we all want to get into your deep obsessions. I don't want to have a boring conversation about what you're into. I want to talk about what you're into, into. Right. So, all right. Good And ad. we will discover quickly who is authentic and who is a fraud. I hope so. <laughs> Super fraud, Adam. <laughs> I don't mean me. I His mean the guest. Fraud detectors up. All right, so we got a great show. We got Shay Serrano coming on uh, to talk about rap, athletes in rap, rap culture, rap history. It's going to be great. Stay tuned. We'll get into that in one second. 
Our guest today is Shay Serrano. He's been called one of the funniest follows on Twitter. I couldn't agree more. Follow him right now at Shay Serrano, two R's. His latest undertaking is The Rap Yearbook, a series of funny and insightful essays chronicling the most important rap song in every year since 1979. Media have been raving about the book. GQ called it the reading equivalent of rocking a boombox on your shoulder. And the San Antonio Current was even more to the point. They called it funny as shit. This week, the book vaulted all the way up to the New York Times bestseller list, all of which is even more interesting since Shea recently told an interviewer he only got into writing when Target and Walmart wouldn't hire him for a second job, and we can all thank both those outlets for the decision. Today, we're going to break down the book, we're going to talk about the history of rap, and we're also going to examine the complicated connection between athletes and rap music. Shea, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Hey, what's going on, homie? (laughs) Um, first of all, congrats on the book. The reception to it has just been nothing short of amazing. And I got the feeling watching you interact with social media that it was almost a bit of a bit overwhelming. Can you just describe the emotions as you've sort of seen all of your followers rush to turn this into a bestseller overnight? Yeah, it was it was really, really weird. Like I'm listening to you do go through the intro and say all the stuff that happened and it's still hard to believe that it actually really happened. It's just like had had I've just spent all my days trying not to cry all the time. That's what it feels like. <laughs> well, our goal will be to make you cry as much as possible during this interview <laughs> from laughter. Right. Yeah, um, the one thing I was going to say, and and you know, I, I spent time as a reporter, um, so I know kind of the you know being on the New York Times bestsellers. I totally understand the power of it. I, it's a. Uh, I was going to ask you, like, that's something that, like, never leaves you. Like, you're a New York Times bestselling author for life. It's a bit like, you know, a guy becomes an NBA champion. He's he's a champion for the rest of his days. Like, has that sunk in yet? It, you know, the, I heard, uh, I did a radio interview the day after the news came out that I made the list, and I heard him say it out loud. Somebody else said it out loud for the first time, and it was really like, like, yo, they're going to say this forever now. I, everything I do... And at first, yeah. I was super excited. Oh my god! Every time I do something, they're gonna say. Every time I do I speak at a on a panel or, or go to a book signing, that's how they're gonna introduce me. But then I got real nervous and scared because now, like everything I do after this, can you do it again? Can you do this crazy thing that happened? Can you make this thing happen? Like it's just, it's too much, man. It's too many emotions. I'm t- I'm excited and I'm scared and just it's it's crazy. Well, welcome to Seth Curry's world right now. Yeah. Yeah, but once you got that one ring, you got that. You are a champion yeah. forever. You know, Shay. We yeah. also we also work in social media, and um, I, we couldn't help but notice the back and forth with books a million. Can you talk about how that started and just how they ultimately kind of declared surrender? Yeah. So what ended up happening was the the book company they send out their copies of the book to everyone, and most people buy books from Amazon. So when I was doing a pre-order, like trying to get people to buy it, I was sending them to Amazon, Amazon, Amazon. And I was I was actually out in Atlanta, and I got a phone call from the publisher. And for for whatever reason, over the course of like two or three days, the book had just started blowing up. We were about a week away from the from the release, and uh, it started to like pick up in sales, pick up in sales. And so when I was in Atlanta that weekend prior, they called and said, "Yo, Amazon is is out of books." They're going to run out of books like in the next hour or so. <laughs> so you should start sending people to other places to buy the book. And I said, all right, let me try. You know, I knew Barnes & Nobles. They got a bunch of them. So I sent them to Barnes & Noble, and I was trying to push that place. And then, I, like, 
a day later, I was in New York, and I got a call, and they said, yo, Barnes & Noble is out of books. Send them to somewhere else. I'm like, Jesus Christ, we're like, we're, <laughs> this is the dumbest problem to have. These places are running out of books. So the, the last place we knew that had a bunch was Books A Million. You know, a lot of places order books, but they order like 20 or 30 copies or whatever, but Books A Million had a whole bunch of them because they're a big chain. I'd never heard of them before then. Uh, you know, I knew Barnes & Noble. I'd never heard of Books A Million, but they're this big book chain. So I started telling people, you'll go to this place or this place. And I saw they had a Twitter account. I looked on there, and they had like twenty or 30,000 followers. So I knew if I sent them a message, they were going to see it. So I tagged them in it, like, hey, we're coming for you type of thing. We just killed Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. We got guys the next. And I, wouldn't, I was like hoping that they would play back but not expecting it. And I got a message from them. Like they saw that what we were doing, and they were like, okay, let's go. And the, and the, the guy that was in charge of it was uh, – I guess he's like a younger guy. He understood what was going on. And so he jumped in and he started like playing back at me saying, there's no way you're going to sell all these copies, blah, blah, blah. He was like photoshopping pictures of the guy from Gladiator in front of the bookstore, <laughs> like doing this sort of crazy shit. And so we were just rushing him, rushing him. I was, you know, I was pushing like, that's all I needed was for him to play back one time and then I can turn this into a real thing. And so I was just going at him as like hard as I could, like kind of being mean about it as well. And we ended up, but it, like I thought it was going to take a couple of days, but the people on Twitter were just being goofy, and they're buying like six, seven, eight copies of the book at a time. It ended up taking maybe like two or three hours, and we had bought all the copies of the book, and then also ended up crashing our website. <laughs> and so, like after that is when I thought, yo, I think we might we might actually have a chance of getting on this list because we're making a fair amount of noise. And then BuzzFeed did a big story on it. And then, like, they turned it into a Twitter moments campaign on actual Twitter. It was just crazy to watch, man. Like, that's the sort of thing you hope happens, but you don't plan for it. And when it does, you're just sitting there like, what the hell? <laughs> well, when you – so backing up to your original plan, and clearly you were a fan of hip-hop, but what made you dedicate so much time and research to actually putting this book together? You know what it what it was was, and this is the dumbest thing. But my this, the book was my editor's idea. I didn't I didn't want to do it. She told me about it. You know, let's do this book, most important song. Blah blah blah. I said that sounds that sounds awful. That sounds like a super boring. I don't want to research or read this book about a 1984 rap song. Like, why is that important? I was three years old at the time. Doesn't have any effect on me. And she's like, just just try it. Like, stop being a dick and just try one chapter. Do one chapter and see what you can do. And so I did a chapter, and it was fun. I, like, had a good time researching it and reading about it. And I was like, I kind of like this. I kind of don't. Let's maybe find something else. And then my wife was like, yo, we need to move. We had, she had just, we had just had another baby. We had three kids. We were in, like, a little tiny townhouse. We, should, you know, we need a real house now. Like, stop playing around. <laughs> and so then I was like, well, I guess we're going to do this book now because I need this book check to pay for this down payment for the house. And then that's, like, that's how we ended up with the book. It's the, it's the silliest thing. Well, it's you mentioned the most important. I mean, that's the that's the clear distinction that I think really becomes the basis for everything you're trying to do. I mean, can you just describe when you decided to do, or or a little bit more of the rationale behind finding the most important song versus finding the best song in a given year? Yeah, yeah. So with the most important song, we're it's easier to argue that a thing is important versus arguing that a thing is the best, because the best can mean anything. Important has a sort of built-in definition to it already. I can say this is the most important song because it caused 
this type of change in rap, or or it moved the sound in a certain direction, or it was bigger than the genre itself. So then you just start looking for songs that did that, and it's a lot easier to build a case around around that. So with something like the example that I, that I use, it's the easiest one to grab is in 1980, Curtis Blow did a song called The Breaks, and it was the first rap song that had a chorus in it. And then now, of course, every rap song just about has a chorus in it. Right. So that was the most important song from that year. And we were just looking for songs that did a thing like that. What was the first gangster rap song? What was the first love rap song? What was the song that sort of took the sound from New York and moved it to L.A. or moved it from L.A. to Virginia or from Virginia to Houston? Like, we're looking for those moments, and when you identify them, then, you know, oh, I get it. Okay, that's why this is important. Shay, was there any fear on your part? Um, You clearly did your research. You analyzed as many songs as possible. But did you ever worry that maybe you would overlook something very obvious? You know, I I was nervous when we first started to do the book. But a lot of time, I spent a lot, a lot of time putting the list together. And then I also, excuse me, I had a couple of people who I thought were really smart and really tied in with rap in the beginning of rap and then up through now, I had them look over the list beforehand before I started writing the book and say, just, you know, let's vet this list. Does this look right to you? Here's, here's what I'm thinking. And I got to go ahead from the people who I put it in front of. So then I felt fine just, you know, researching the songs after that. It was not a, not a problem, but I knew just doing it in general, it's the thing that's going to cause some sort of argument or, some people are going to, to get mad. That's just the nature of the internet, really. I knew as soon as we put the list out there, I was going to get a hundred people telling me why I got it wrong, even though none of them had looked at why that song was right. important. You know, none of them had super re- smart and open minded. None of them had read the book. Like they that. just they just looked at the list. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So, so with those people around you advising you, was that the best method for separating your maybe? a personal attachment you had to a song um, versus its actual cultural impact? Because I think a lot of us, when we think about music, it had an impact on our lives or right. a period we were in. And so, like, mm-hmm. for me, like, hearing Outkast in 1994, like, that, to me, was huge. And it's like, I didn't even know there were rappers in the South. But how were you able to right. separate yourself from that idea um and really focusing on what was important to to rap as a whole. You know what what I did, what ended up working out the best was for each year I had a list of like 10 or 15 songs that were big songs that year. Songs that you just, oh, that year was this song type of thing. And for each of those songs, I tried to explain in just two or three sentences, like I'm, I'm just sitting there at the computer typing out why this song was the most important. Just you get three sentences tops to explain why this song was important, and if you do it like that, then you can look and it becomes very obvious which ones were important to rap, and then one of them is like this is a song that I danced to with a girl. Like that's not you're out of here. That's not a reason <laughs> that this song is important to rap. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, that was a super helpful way. And then again, even when I'm putting that list together, I had different people help me. There's this guy named named Evan who does this Tumblr called Up North Trips, which is like a rap history Tumblr. So I'm like, I'm looking for guys like this who I know have sort of expertise in, in curating these things. And yeah, so when, when you do it like that, it makes it a lot, a lot easier to just look at the idea, 
without any sort of structure, you're just like, oh my God, there's no way I can get this right. But once you start to break it down into pieces, it, it all starts to fit together and make sense. Was there a year that gave you the most angst or perhaps the you felt like, wow, this is just such a stacked deck for whatever reason that it's going to be really hard to pluck one song out of it? 1994 was really? the only year when I was looking at it like, Oh my God, you had so much stuff in that year. You know, of course you have Biggie with Juicy, right? but then you have Nas, you've got, like you mentioned, Outkast. You've got the friggin' Above the Rim soundtrack is better as an album than like 60% of albums that came out this year. Right. Like 1994 was just so goofy and how strong it was. Snoop's uh, Doggy Style came out, I think, in November 93, but the singles weren't coming out until 94. Like, that was a year, oh my God, how do I just pick one single song? That was the one year that just, that was a tough one. Do you think, that, so when you list those names and you think back to that year specifically, it reminds me a little bit of all of the rock artists that might have emerged between like 91 and 92. Like they were there, but at the, there was a sort of a, a cultural change in that they got mass airplay. They were for the first time maybe exposed to a new generation that was becoming of age to buy records. Do you think that there was something special about that year and that time that allowed it to be such a murderer's row? Or do you think it was just, hey, right place, right time, don't overthink it? Yeah, I think there was definitely a lot going on um, as far as right place, right time that, that you had. Because rap had already sort of jumped out of there in 88 with Straight Outta Compton when it became like a news story. Oh my God, rap is a thing. And then... By the time 92 came, that's when Dre did the whole G-Funk thing. And he took what essentially was gangster rap, and he turned it into this thing that was fun, that people could listen to without the existential drama that came along with it. Like, I don't have to think about all of this horrible thing that's happening to all these horrible people. Um, You know what I'm saying? Right. So that happens in 92, and it becomes a fun thing. So by 94 is when we're really getting like these big-time superstars who are starting to transcend rap and show up in places that aren't just rap-related. So, yeah, it was really a right-place, right-time situation. And you, I just it's just one of those years, like like the friggin' 86 or 84 draft, where you've got a, just a <laughs> list of Hall of Famers that, why are they all here at, the, at this time? You know, it's just, you know, hopefully we get another one of those so I have a, a specific question because, uh, again, I have some personal attachment to certain songs, and I'm not going to be uh, as professional as you are about it. Uh, but Control is one of the best songs I've heard, rap songs I've heard in years, um, particularly because it didn't make the final album. First question, do you think it didn't make the final album because there were legitimate sampling issues or was it because Big Sean didn't want to get beat on his own album? <laughs> oh, big poor Big Sean, man. I felt so bad for him. He was talking about it afterwards. Everyone was going crazy for Kendrick's verse. And I remember reading the interview, and he's like, yo, my verse was pretty good on there, too. And, you know, in fairness to him, it was a pretty good verse. But, yeah, I think that was, that was the whole sampling thing. But I think Big Sean just didn't want that, that part on his album and big sean's verse yeah, that was a great that was such a fun moment yeah and big sean's verse i mean it was great if you listen to that whole song and then you just got into jay electronica towards the end you would think 
like Big Sean killed it. But then you have Kendrick's <laughs> Kendrick's verse, which uh, I think you said was 550 words, but very compact, dissed every rapper in the game, but in a way of just saying like, hey, I'm like Michael Jordan. I want to go out on the court and destroy you for for the, for the reason that Kendrick was bold enough to call everyone out and uh, just because of the way he put the lyrics together, where does that verse rank among hip hop's greatest all time verses? Oh, geez. I can't imagine that you can even fit that one into the top 50. Oh, that's good. If it's just verses from any song of any time, like, Oh my God, that's not even a top 10 Kendrick verse. Wow. Really? (laughs) He said, you know, yeah, he's had whole songs that are better than just that. That verse was really exciting because he was naming everybody and yeah. who names anybody anymore. But outside of that, you're like, okay, I get it. Like it, that's just how he writes his music. It's all you can unravel everything he does, and it's got these meanings behind these meanings behind. That's why he's so good, and so that's why he's the best guy right now. But just as far as top rap verses of all. Time? No, I don't think that that one's going to be very high up there at all. Yeah, so the headline of this is going to be Shea Serrano destroys Kendrick Lamar in podcast interview. Yeah, yeah no. basically. That's what <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to get 100, 100 tweets about that now. I thought you were riding for Kendrick. Like that. <laughs> um, I do want to get into athletes and rap quickly, um, but before we do that, w- one question I had was two songs stand out to me that um, I wanted to, to flag. One is, did you think about... To, like one of the two live crew songs or something that, that had the impact in terms of really driving home the parental advisory lyrics. I don't know that it's, I mean, I don't know that those are great songs clearly, but the, you know, the, the, when you talk about cultural impact, did you have to weigh something like that? And the other one, the other good example of that would be, I, you know, I know you have fight the power in there. I love that chapter of the book. Um, but also by the time I got to air, by the time I get to Arizona, I had so many problematic controversial things about the video and the depiction of, you know, like sort of uh, rage boiling over into a potential assassination of a public figure. Did you weigh those examples or maybe other examples of songs that had like really hot in the moment political debate, but necessarily didn't necessarily kind of last long enough? Yeah, you tried to work some of that stuff and I tried to get all of that in there. But with like the two live crew thing, and this is why parts of the book were, were tricky to write, but with the two live crew thing, let's say with, with me so horny like that came out the same year as fight the power and now you've got to pick only one of those types right, only one right. of those songs you know what i'm saying all that stuff was happening at the same time um i think that was that was 89 and then you had like faith ass up in 1990 like there's also this crazy stuff going on all at the same period of time so the that was the only reason that a song like that didn't didn't make it in there right um, that was just an, a better argument for another song no, I totally get it. And, you know, we've been, for the people listening, like, we've been talking about this very seriously. I mean, it's, you do such a great job unpacking and unraveling all these different cultural meanings and discussions and, and, um, and points behind the songs. But what we don't want to obscure is just the, it's a really fun read. Like, it's funny as hell in a lot of parts. You have such a great way with your wording. And I know one of the things we do on the show is we break down sort of um, what athletes do in their side lives, which are, you know, things we find fun and interesting. And so we did, we definitely wanted to talk to you a little bit about the history of athletes and, and rap music because we've seen, 
a number of them tried out, um, it, you know, maybe not as much today as, as back in the day, but just what's your overall feeling when we talk about athletes and rap over the years? I am 100% a fan of athletes and rap. <laughs> Good. You know, we were talking about 1994 earlier. That was the year that they had that B-Ball's Best Kept Secret. Do you remember that album? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Dana Barrows. How, how old y'all were. Cedric Dana Barrows went so hard on that. Like, like Dana Barrows, oh my, I didn't like him as an NBA player. And then it was his album. I was like, Dana Barrows my favorite basketball player of all time. Gary Payton had a song on there. Um, was it Malik had a song? Like, yep. like that was crazy in 94. But... As far as rappers and, and and athletes go, like I'm all for it. Let's get let's get more of it. You know, I feel like we should have more. The guys who are doing it now are okay using like Damian Lillard or Iman Shumpert, but I want like I want the superstars to do it again. You know, I want to I want a Kawhi Leonard mixtape. That's what I want. <laughs> I'll kill for a Kawhi Leonard mixtape. They allow that in San Antonio. I, no, you're not allowed to rap in San Antonio, so <laughs> it'll, it, it won't happen. I want Tim Duncan. But um. <laughs> That would be a really dope. Um, yeah, I would give my life for a Tim Duncan. There was a Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant Sprite commercial that featured raps about both one. of them. Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to do it because of copyright infringement, Which, so I won't. Tim Duncan, I think it's, and he it's ain't crazy how, uh, Go well, ahead. Yeah, it, it, was, it was. I remember that, that commercial. You know, I always thought it was was really interesting – if you think about as far as rappers and in the, the NBA go, you you have I think almost a like a full team's worth of rappers who have played for the Lakers. Like you could just have you could play five on five and then do like a freestyle battle afterwards with the same guys. And the, and you've got the whole scale of guys on there. Like the best the best hands down rapper basketball player of all time is Shaq. He was actually a really good rapper. I think right. he even sold he had like a platinum selling album. This is in the 90s when everybody had a platinum selling album, but still, he gets that tag next to his name. He's the best one. And, and like, the worst is Kobe. You've got the whole scale <laughs> on there the, from best to worst. Metal Kobe. World's Peace. Kobe is the worst? You know, uh, Kobe's the worst. Yeah. Of all time. Get him out of here. I would, <laughs> of all time. As far as athlete rappers go, okay. put him at the bottom. I would put him below John Cena. Remember John Cena? <laughs> Shots <laughs> fired. Like John Cena was rapping. Yeah. Macho Man, like wrestlers had it. Put him under there. Put put Iverson, put Jules above Kobe on that list. You know, I, I just. But, I but Shay, Kobe Bryant was on Brian McKnight's Hold Me. How many of these guys got to do a verse on a Brian McKnight song? Come on. He did, and he was and he was really bad on there <laughs> as, as well. Yeah, he was. He, he did a song with Tyra Banks too, so you know, throw that one. Out. I mean, if we're gonna throw names out there, let's throw all the names out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tyra Banks, not known for her singing skills. Uh, let me ask you a quick question about Shaq, and we're coming up to the end of our time with you. So, thank you for giving us so much right now. Uh, at the end of, I know I got skills. He talks about you know, booty rappers stay booty, and I think kind of cycling it back to your book. You know, you talk about like a, a time capsule or a window into a certain year. And, and, you know, back then when so many rappers were getting pressure to go more hard or mimic what was happening out of, um, you know, on the, on the West Coast. Can you talk about like where Shaq maybe was caught between two worlds of like the end of the dance party rap scene? And, and he never was going to be able to transition into more of a harder sound because of his overall persona, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the tricky thing as far as, as rappers go with athletes they can't do all the things that a rapper should be able to do like they should be allowed to to do that but 
I think like, oh, I, but I need to be a spokesman for Sprite, so I'm just not gonna be out here killing police officers in my rap song. Like that's just part of the deal, you know. And I and I guess that's a fair trade, you know. I would I would give me Shaq's salary, and I'm gonna rap about whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so many athletes talk, or so many rappers talk about like how much they have. I mean, Shaq doesn't even have to say it. It's just people, we can read his contract terms. <laughs> you know, yeah, I own 25 Burger yeah. Kings. Right. Well, hey, Shay, to close things out, you know, one of the segments of the show we're doing with people is, you know, we know athletes have to go through those annoying, like, aptitude tests, the Wonderlick exams when they go to the combine and stuff. So we wanted to test your general knowledge. So we want to give you, if you don't oh, mind, no. five, five questions about the intersection between rap and sports. Shay, are you ready? I'm not, but I guess we're going to do it. <laughs> come, come on. All right, Adam, take it away. All right. You're a big Spurs fan, obviously. Uh, which San Antonio yeah. Spurs player appears in the MC Hammer rap video for Too Legit to Quit? David Robinson. Yes. Yes. One for one. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that one. I have a David Robinson jacket that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> nice. Nicely timed. I All met right. David Robinson in Aspen, Colorado. My dad is 6'8", so for him to look up to someone who's 7 foot... Uh, Impressive moment in my life. Which of these titles... He's a big guy. He is. And and trim. Which of these titles was the name of Sha- Shaquille O'Neal's first rap album in 1993? Now, we could give you multiple choice, or you can just go outright win. Uh, I think I know it, but let's go multiple choice. Is it Shaq Diesel or Shaq Fu? For nine, oh, no, I don't know. Wait. 1993. Shaq Diesel. Shaq Fu's the, Shaq Fu's the video game. Yes. yes. And the, the follow-up to Shaq Diesel was called Shaq Fu to Return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. See, I'm on it. I'm two good. for two. Two for two. Three more. All right. Quickly. Which member of the U.S. men's soccer team has recorded rap songs under the alias Deuce? Clint Dempsey. Three Correct. for three. What current NBA? Oh, shout out Houston. <laughs> That's right. What current NBA head coach once released a rap song called "What the Kid Did"? <laughs> Greg Popovich. Uh, that would be Jason. Is that Kidd. right? No, Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd. I just was fixing Greg Popovich rap. <laughs> uh, it would be short. It'd be a short rap, a couple bars. Uh, name either of the two NBA teams that Master P played for. All right, this is the final question. The Hornets. Yes. Yes. And we'll give you one. Boom. And you've already answered this. We had this, but for a bonus question, what model sang on Kobe Bryant's debut song, (laughs) K.O.B.? See? I knew it. Good old Tyra. Tyra's everywhere. She was tied to she was tied to Weber. Weber was a rapper too. I encourage Brad to take it easy on you on these. Clearly, we should have went to the advanced uh, the uh, advanced course classes. I don't know, but something tells me someone who wrote a book called "The Rap Yearbook: The Most Important Rap Songs from Every Year Since 1975." Uh, is going to get whatever. So, Shay, thank you so much for joining us. The uh, conversation was amazing. Uh, you're such a good sport for coming on, even before we really kind of launched the podcast. Um, people can get your book on um, iTunes, Amazon, um, at retailers. It may be sold out wherever, but keep going online and keep trying to find the book. It's well worth the read. We love it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Shay. All right. Thanks, Tommy.
Today's episode of Just Not Sports is sponsored by TheHeckler.com. You know, Adam and I work in Chicago, and The Heckler is definitely a must-read during our workday. This is a site that's all about life as an American sports fan. You know, there's really funny satire stories as well as real sports news and commentary posted every day. And the site also offers a ton of really great group road trips to see Chicago teams like the Cubs, Bears, Blackhawks, and more. That's just such a great way to catch a game with a really, really fun group of people, guys. The Heckler also has an awesome online store where you can buy really great merchandise. They've got sweatshirts, mugs, koozies, and just a freaking ton of really hilarious t-shirts, not just about sports, but also about stuff like St. Patty's Day, college, video games, and more. Anyway, we love The Heckler. We're super appreciative for them for being our first sponsor of the show. So please go check it out. Browse the store. Read some funny articles while you're there. Theheckler.com. Forget LeBron returning to Cleveland. The greatest NBA homecoming is Stefan Marbury bringing back Starberry Inc. to American Shores. Adam, should we hum a little bit? Star Spangled Banner or something? I think we should. Almost 10 years ago, Starberry launches a brand offering NBA-worthy shoes at, quote, rock-bottom prices. And no joke, rock-bottom. Shoes were sold for as little as $15. In an industry known for making high tops so expensive, kids were robbed at gunpoint for them. That's not just a deal. That's a revolution. Just like their namesake, Starberry were flashy, slick, and polarizing. The shoemaking establishment labeled them cheap knockoffs, but other people cheered the company for its mission to give low-income families an alternative to $150 sneakers. So now that the company is coming back, Adam, back to America, what color strawberries are you going to get me for Christmas? Uh, I think you want the Nick-colored ones, and would you like to share with everyone why you want those particular colors? Back in 2006, back in 2006, I was a young reporter working the entertainment beat. I saw Starberry shoes on the interwebs. I went to my local Stephen Berry's, which we're going to get into in a second, the store that had them, and I looked specifically for the orange and blue Starberries that they had like a gleam to them. They were they were like opening like a, a Three Musketeers wrapper or like galoshes. They looked like they were waterproof. They were shiny plastic. And they had him in the orange and blue and white Knicks colors, which I thought were just funny because I don't I don't think he was playing for the team anymore. I think he was like there for like a hot minute. Yeah. And kind of it dictated the color scheme. I had to go to like three or four Stephen Bears. And Adam, that's not like going to Starbucks. <laughs> Those are real drives. Right. To places like Rockford and and Champaign, Illinois. You mean you were obsessive compulsive about something? I was. Get out of here. I was to get it exactly how I want. <laughs> I bought them. I wore them so proudly, and my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, took one look and was like, these are gone. <laughs> these are not allowed outside ever. I didn't care. I loved them, man. I love them. And you still get to buy Bengals jerseys. I, I still do. No sports. No sports. I'm calling you out on that. Um, the That was uh, sports fashion. I think okay. that's in the category. That's that's fair. I mean, joking aside, I mean, we, we sound we sound like we're being harsh on Starberry Inc. Because there is a lot of snark. There is a lot of people like rolling their eyes at it. I'm just going to say it right now and throw it down. This is my favorite business venture in the history of business ventures of any athlete in any sport ever. I love it. Well, I think it. I think people scoff at it because of Starberry as such an outrageous Stefan Marbury as such an outrageous personality himself. Uh, but I remember that this story ran on 60 Minutes. 
um, at the time because it was such a revolutionary idea that people knew what Jordans were being made for in overseas factories right. and what the markup was on people who couldn't afford them in the first place. So the idea that Stefan, who was called a selfish player, was not really looking to make money off of this project was amazing. Oh, he wasn't just called a selfish player. Okay, <laughs> we need to we need to unpack this for a second. This is one article by Wojo, Woj, Woj, Wojo, Wojo. We'll go Wojo. One article in like you know that time around that he was playing with the Knicks described him as narcissistic, irrational, defiant, selfish, a serial loser, a goofball. And a cynical and selfish destroyer of good moods and chemistry. Not just chemistry, good moods. Like, you're in the clubhouse, you're like, hey, you know, I'm glad it's fall. I like crisp weather. Mood destroyed. <laughs> Starberry came in and ruined it. I mean, the hyperbole around this guy, he was not just a me guy. He was in that rare core of, I think, mostly NBA, young, you know, NBA talent from that era, Steve Francis, those who were just deemed toxic to any sports environment. Me first and selfish. And then here comes this altruistic business venture that just ran entirely counter to his public persona. That's why I have so much affinity for it. It's like such a contradiction, but it's you can't you can't call him selfish. He is giving away the profits to make low income kids have a sneaker alternative. I, I love it. I love it. And when Stephen Barry's died, so too <laughs> did the line, but he's finding a way to bring it back. We have to break down Stephen Berry's, the slow death of Stephen Berry. So Stephen Berry's was like a TJ Maxx, right? For like, for like it was like a low cost. Yes, it was this. It was the low cost apparel store. So like the generic jersey and the Stephon Marbury Knicks colored shoes. Do you remember the name of the model of the shoe? No. That's okay. You don't need to. I should. What were they? Do you? Nope. Oh, you were asking me if I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I probably infinity. should. Yeah. That's all right. We'll have a new pair. Of I stuff. can't read that tattoo. It's on my upper right back, <laughs> so I never see it good in the mirror. The okay. So Stephen Berry's they would sell stuff like like it was like for college kids. Like it, I, that's how I knew. I was in Central Illinois. It was over by the school, so you could get you know like Big Ten T-shirts there and cheap stuff, and it seemed like a match made in heaven for a Starberry Inc. I just I always wonder whether it would have just been – if it had just gotten a little further into the evolution of e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe mm. – look, this is 06, 07. Maybe I'm – like, people were buying stuff online then. So maybe I'm, I'm giving a little too much credit. But I always wondered, like, could it find a market? Could it – you know, once people of low income could have access to buy it on the, online safely and securely too, would they have found a market that – of people who couldn't find their way to a Stephen Berry's or whatever. I don't know. We are going to find out. We are going to find out. Let me talk. Let me ask you some questions about this. Sure. Let's, let's, let's break this down. Break down some game film. He's taking some huge shots at Michael Jordan on Twitter. He is. Like, real people know, I'm off of kids getting killed for Jordans. I hate this dude. Won't change that. Greedy! Exclamation point. <laughs> what, right. The most ironic social media statement Ever, but is there is there something to it that Jordan allows his shoes to be sold for two hundred dollars? I mean, you can argue it's what the market bears, right? Capitalism. It's he's just doing business, um, and beyond the fourteen year old kid who wants a pair of Jordans, they have become 
a piece of fashion uh, iconography, right. so to speak. So can you charge $200 for that? Sure. I think Marbury's thought was for this specific demographic of kids who can't afford those Jordans and don't want the Jordans because of the artistic merit of it, I want to give them a pair of basketball shoes that are both fashionable and functional. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Martin Luther King who said Republicans buy sneakers too, right? <laughs> oh, wait, no, that was Michael Jordan. <laughs> yes, his shoes are going to cost $200 and he's going to do his thing. I mean, th- that's what's great. Th- it can li- that's always going to exist. I'm not judging someone who goes out and buys. You make, a lot of, you make money or you, you, you save your money and you buy Jordans, knock yourself out. It's great. But I do think there's a market for this, or I hope there's a market for this. I think it's great. I also just think it's awesome coming from a guy who is described as a cynical and selfish destroyer of good moods and chemistry right? by resp- by the NBA establishment. That's not a blogger firing off on Twitter. Like That's the establishment. Um, do you think it's going to work? Uh, no. I don't think that his name resonates anymore. Uh... Except in China. Do you do you think it's going to help or hurt that his career is over? It's going to hurt. Do you think it's could it help because he's not making negative news all the time? No. For his target demographic, right. for you and me, uh, we will each have four to five pairs. In fact, I can't wait. It's what I'm getting you for Christmas. Right. So that brings me to my final question, most important question. Will my wife let me keep them this time? Well, Brad, we will keep them at my apartment. You are about a you work about a ten minute walk from my apartment. You will get off the train. You will come change into your Starburys, and you will go to work. You will then drop them off at my house at the end of the day. <laughs> walk back to the train in your loafers, and you will go to your wife. No one being the wiser. I'm I'm like the Mr. Rogers of Starberry. Just like, you know, wear them to work, slip them off on the way home. Let's not say that this is a daily thing. I don't want you in my house every day. Well, Stefan, if you're listening, I'm sure you are. You are welcome on the show anytime to talk about it. I, we would love it. We love it. You know, good luck. Um, and so, your play. I, we really want to talk about your play. The Just Not Sports Gang will eventually break down the alleged musical about the life of Stefan Marbury, which did air in China. Important news, we just need a little bit more time to wrap our heads around it. Starring Stefan Marbury. Yes. <laughs> well, that's episode two of the Just Not Sports podcast. Thank you, Adam. Uh, let's thank our guest, Shay Serrano, who has written just an amazing book about the history and evolution of rap. Um, the, it's called The Rap Yearbook. You should check it out and definitely buy it. We'll keep our eye out for Stefan Marbury news. When we see it, when we see anything interesting, we will post it to our website, justnotsports.com. In the interim, you can check us out on Twitter, at justnotsports. Or you can email us, show ideas, tips, interesting things you think athletes or the sports world's doing on the side, justnotsports at gmail.com. How about Shay went to Dana Barros unprompted? That's why he's the best. He is the best. And uh, with that, Adam... Until next time. Until next time, Brad. Oh, I'm bound to take flight.